It's that critical step that falls between an arrest and a trial. What do you do with someone after they've been charged with a crime, but before they've received their day in court? Well, here in the United States, more often than not, the answer to that question centers around one thing, money. I'm David Abair, and on this episode of Deep Dive with Laura Arnold, a closer look at the debate over bail reform. We'll hear from a prominent civil rights attorney. There's enormous pressure to plead guilty. And the police chief from our nation's fourth largest city. Of course you have to look at their criminal history. Each of them grappling with the question, where is the balance between public safety and personal liberty? So with that as the backdrop, here's Laura Arnold with our latest Deep Dive Conversation. I'm thrilled to be here today to dive into a fulsome discussion on bail reform, which is one of the most active areas of criminal justice reform today. Now, bail is an issue that has gotten a lot of airtime in the last couple of years. We've seen reforms and resistance to reforms throughout the country, from New York to California, Michigan, Ohio, Illinois, Georgia, and right here in Harris County, Texas. We've also seen successful legal attacks on bail nationwide, here in Houston, Alabama, Missouri, California, just to name a few. It's a social justice issue. It's a public safety issue. It highlights the sinister ways in which our system disproportionately punishes the poor. And it also sheds light on the trade-offs and challenges in finding solutions. Here with me in the studio to discuss these topics are two outstanding leaders in criminal justice, leaders with vastly different experiences and perspectives on this issue. Alec Karakatsanis is founder and executive director of Civil Rights Corps. He's a deeply committed civil rights lawyer and social justice advocate and the author of the book Usual Cruelty. His organization has brought numerous challenges to the money bail system throughout the country, including a historic victory right here in Harris County, Texas. Chief Art Acevedo is the chief of Houston Police Department. He leads a department of 5,200 officers and 1,200 civilians with an annual budget of over $800 million. He's a national leader in policing, currently president of the Major City Chief Association, and with previous leadership positions at the International Association of Chiefs of Police. I'm excited to get started. Art, Alec, welcome to Deep Dive. Hi. Wonderful to be here. Thank you. So, Alec, let's level set first. We're talking about bail reform. Can you give us a broad description of what we're talking about? What's the current system, and what are you trying to change? In over 3,000 jurisdictions all over this country, we determine whether a human being is kept in a cage or not prior to trial based on whether that person has access to money. That's really what the money bail system is about. The money bail system is how we determine whether someone goes home to her family or is kept in a jail cell. And about 400,000 human beings on any given night in this country right now, as we're talking here, are kept in a cage just because they can't make that payment. That is the predominant system that's used in virtually every city and county all over the country. So just to be clear, somebody gets somebody gets detained, goes before a judge, a judge says your trial date is, let's say, six months into the future, maybe a year into the future. Then the judge decides what's going to happen with this person between today and that person's trial date, so six months or a year in the future. And historically, what's happened is the judge has assessed bail on the person. Very often, that judge, in, here in Harris County, for example, that judge looked at a money bail schedule, right, a chart that says, oh, you know, you're charged with X, okay, well, bail is set at whatever else. And if the person doesn't have the money, then that person is remanded until her trial date. So it could be six months, it could be a year, however long it takes for that person to get tried. Is that right? Correct. And what ended up happening is that in order to avoid that lengthy time in jail away from your family, there's enormous pressure to plead guilty. 
And so many, many people decide relatively early on in their case, they're actually told by the prosecutor, hey, if you plead guilty today, you can get out. But if you want to fight your case, you're going to have to stay in this jail cell because you can't pay. So that actually led to enormous pressure all over the country to to plead guilty and to plead guilty fast. And that is, I think, one of the hidden stories behind the American money bail system. It didn't evolve for reasons connected to public safety or because money bail is particularly good at anything that we care about. It evolved as a way of coercing large numbers of people to plead guilty because we're arresting so many people, so many more people than we could ever give jury trials to. We needed to find some way of really quickly forcing them to plead guilty. And that, I think, is really the the, the reason that the money bill system looks the way that it does. Or at its core, what we should care about is whether or not he's going to show up for trial no. and whether he's going to do anything bad, right? The position of the reform community right now is that bail doesn't answer either of those questions. Yeah. It doesn't tell us anything about whether or not the person is going to recidivate, and it doesn't tell us anything about whether or not that person will fail to appear. Do you agree with that? Do you think yeah. there's a place for bail in our pretrial justice system? Well, I mean, I, look, I, I, I think that well, the one thing I do know is that uh, that should not be the decision. That should not be the decision point. That should not be the consideration. Can a person pay money to get out of jail? I believe that what we need is a, a, a system where we uh, really do assess the risk of this person. The two issues that we need to assess are risk of to the public safety, i.e., are they violent? Do they have a history of violence? Do they have a, are they repeat offenders? Uh, so on and so forth. And then the other one would be the risk of flight. And to me, that goes hand in hand again with the risk of the public safety, because if somebody absconds on not coming on a petty uh, theft charge or personal use of uh, narcotic possession charge, the risk to the public safety is, I think, minimal. But if it's somebody that is uh, committing violent crimes against individuals or burglarizing homes that we know sooner or later turn into that property crime can turn into an, uh, an aggravated assault, an aggravated sexual assault, or uh, murder, then that's very risky behavior. And I think we, we really need to make our decisions based on risk. And we need to have a risk tool that looks into these issues. And quite frankly, I think that if we use some common sense on this, that we're probably, I hope, that we could find some, some common ground uh, on this issue. Because my concern is, and I think that it's safe to say I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a reformative chief, a reform chief, a progressive individual. But my concern is when I start reading op-ed pieces in the Washington Post, which is not your, which I don't think anybody would consider a bastion of conservative journalism, an op-ed piece that says, are we taking reform too far, that that's a red flag. And so we have to be careful that we don't go from one extreme to another extreme, where at the end of the day, we end up hurting the cause of reform and we end up hurting the collective safety of the American people. Let's talk about this issue about taking reform too far. Alec, can you summarize for us the groundbreaking lawsuit in Harris County and what the consent decree and agreement was in Harris County with respect to bail reform? And let me let me put that in context just first to understand when we talk about how far is too far, just how extreme our current situation is. We are locking people up in this country at five times our own historical average and five to ten times most other countries. 
we are locking black people up at a rate six times that of South Africa at the height of apartheid. We have an extreme problem with mass incarceration. So when we talk about whether reforms are going too far, we have to understand that we have gone so far in locking people up further than any society in the recorded history of the modern world has gone. So when we talk about things like the money bail system, we have to understand it in the context of a society that is arresting and processing a higher percentage of its population than any society that we've ever studied that we have records of. So in Harris County, for example, that manifested in in particularly grotesque ways. When I got here in 2016, there were about 50,000 misdemeanor arrests every single year in Harris County alone. About 20,000 of those arrests were people who couldn't afford to pay just a couple hundred dollars to get out of jail. So 20,000 people in Harris County Jail charged with misdemeanor offenses were kept in a jail cell prior to trial for the duration of their case just because they couldn't pay. The other 30,000 of those people were able to pay their way out. And the reason that worked that way was Harris County used used a bond schedule, like the one that you just mentioned a few minutes ago. It was a chart that basically said, if you're charged with this offense, you have to pay this amount of money. And if you're charged with that offense, you pay that amount of money. And if you couldn't pay that amount of money, you were stuck in jail. One thing that was very interesting, impoverished people are coming up one by one. Their hearings are lasting a few seconds. And they're being told that they're taken away from their job, their family, their school, their home, their community, and if they can't pay money. And they were under so much pressure that for the people that couldn't pay a couple hundred dollars, they pled guilty 84% of the time. And they pled guilty in a median of 3.2 days. That's how quickly you're being churned out. No one was investigating their case. No one was checking to see whether, and why are they doing that? Well, the Harris County Jail is a horrific place. In the five years before we filed our lawsuit, 55 human beings died in the Harris County Jail just because they couldn't make a payment. 132 people the year before we filed tried to commit suicide in the Harris County Jail. Jails are places where you're separated from your children. You don't know where they are. You don't know whether they're safe. You're not given access to sunlight, fresh air, clean water, food, all the things that we all take for granted are things that are de- you're deprived of. So when you're told you can plead guilty right now and go home to your family, or you can fight your case, you're going to plead guilty. And, and, and that's what led Harris County um, to become the nation's leader in exonerations. So many people were pleading guilty to crimes that they weren't guilty of just because they were trying to get out of jail. And, and so Alec, you, there was massive dysfunction in the, in the Harris County jail system. You brought a lawsuit against Harris County in federal court you won this lawsuit. And tell us what the agreement has been to resolve this lawsuit. So the the lawsuit victory um, established a couple of very important things. One, secured money bail is not connected to either public safety or to people coming back to court. And so the misdemeanor settlement in the consent decree removed the question of how much money you have from the question of should you be released prior to trial or not. Instead, it's now based on largely the charge that you're that you're given. So if you're charged with um, the vast majority of misdemeanors that don't involve any kind of threat of violence or violence against another person, you are released without having to pay. So your family doesn't have to pay money to the bail bond industry. Um, you don't have to fork up money up front. Um, you're just released with standard, you know, Um, condition that if you don't come back to court, you owe some money. And if you're charged with one of the offenses that's been carved out, so those things are things like if you're charged with an offense while you're on probation or parole, or a second offense DUI or domestic violence case or things like that, then you're kept in jail, whether you're rich or poor. So you can't buy your way out of jail immediately like you used to be able to do when you're charged with one of those things. You're kept in jail until you see a judicial officer. And the judicial officer decides whether you should be released or detained and what conditions should be put on your pretrial liberty. Are you have been on record as opposing the bail settlement in Harris County. Why? Well, actually, I oppose some of the 
or we had to provide babysitting and transportation, some of the things that are, you know, I thought were a little bit over the top. But I support the rest of it, just like we're going to uh, do site and release here. So they don't even have to be losing their car that day. You know, I support for personal possession of uh, narcotics that today is a felony, not arresting that person and booking them, whether we impound their car, we take them to jail. I mean, there are a lot of things that we need to do. But the one thing that Alec and some of the people that I know are going to want to move into the felony realm, and I'm a fo- I focus on violent crime, is for all those stats on incarceration of low-level offenders, the one thing that they will not point out is that we're one of the most violent, we are the most violent nation in the free world. We've got more guns, more gun violence, more everything in terms of violence than any other nation in civilized society. And so, again, I think that we have to be just real cautious because the one thing I'm in the people business and I've been in the people business my entire adult life. Now, one thing that I know is that the same communities that are supportive, be careful that they don't, they're the ones that are going to suffer from the violence. We got to be careful that we don't have a backlash if we are not smart on making the decisions. Let me just uh, add this other thing too. The same folks that want bail reform and criminal justice reform are the same folks that will not provide the the, the court space that we need, the, the courtrooms that we need, the prosecutors that we need, the defense attorneys that we need in terms of public defenders so people can get a speedy trial, okay? Because I think that's part of it. What good are you doing me if I'm facing criminal charges and for three years my, my guilt or innocent is at, uh, is in question. So I would say that I would ask them, the folks that want bail reform, that if you're truly worried about the people that we all should be worried about, we should also demand that we invest in a court system, in a criminal justice system, where people get resolution to the question, and that is your guilt or your innocence, because I think that's just as damaging to people's lives. Art, it doesn't sound like you have a problem with, with bail reform with respect to misdemeanors. No, not at all. Right. I, I mean, yeah. I, I support it. I just think that if we, I believe in restorative justice. I believe in get people on the right path. And my goal for misdemeanors is let's get them on the right path before they graduate to more serious crime. And that's what our effort should really be. Yeah. So let's talk about graduating, if you will, to felonies. Yeah. Uh, Alec, the Harris County Bail Settlement, which was very ambitious, groundbreaking, uh, really unprecedented in this nation covered only misdemeanors. You are in the process of negotiating in legal processes to cover felonies as well. Can you talk us through whether there's a difference between misdemeanors and felonies in your mind? Does the same doctrine apply? All of the same constitutional doctrines apply. And put it simply, even in a felony case, no person should be kept in a jail cell away from her family simply because she can't make a monetary payment. This is the decision and what the Constitution requires is that the decision about whether someone is kept in a jail cell prior to trial be based on factors that are objective, like is the person a danger to the community? Is the person a risk of flight? And then the most important question is, are there any conditions other than completely incapacitating this person away from their family prior to trial, which could reasonably mitigate 
any danger that this person poses. And the reality of the situation is if you look at the data, there's not that much risk in the pretrial period. People are enormously likely to come back to all their court appearances, to not commit a new crime prior to trial. Um, And that's actually more true in felony cases than it is in misdemeanor cases. The more serious the charge, the more likely people are to come back to court, according to the data, the less likely they are to commit new offenses. And in other jurisdictions that have done bail reform in felony cases, they release very high rates of people with with extremely low cases and instances of people committing new crime. Art, we, you just mentioned that you were you were okay with, you know, with bail reform with respect to misdemeanors, but you have a very different view when it comes to felonies. No, I mean, for felonies, again, I actually support the concept of bail reform for felonies. Again, it needs to be a risk-based system, a validated system that we can all come together from the entire spectrum of the political spectrum. But it shouldn't be a political decision. It should be a decision that's that's made by social scientists, by psychologists, by psychiatrists, uh, by people that want to come up with a tool that I, th- I think your foundation, the John and uh, Laura Arnold Foundation, worked on a tool that's either, hey, this person is appropriate uh, you know, there's there's basically three findings. A tool that would say, you know, they, they're good to go out the door without bail. Two, here are the conditions in order to get them out without money. Or three, this person, for these reasons that are articulable, poses a threat to safety. Uh, because let's face it, last year in the city of Houston, preliminary, it looks like about 25% of my 281 murders were people on parole or probation. And now we're looking at the numbers that were committing crimes while out on bail. And it's significant in the city. The other piece is we've got to give resources to the court so we can have hearings to make sure there's enough evidence in terms of the probability or the likelihood that you could get a conviction uh, during a, a, a trial. So we we uh, we need to support that. And lastly, we need to have a s- investment to get these people resolution. And so they're not holding on for three years uh, or longer, because I think part of it on both ends of the spectrum for different reasons, they're doing it just to be able to support their views on these issues. It's too early to make any conclusions with respect to the effect of the consent decree in Harris County. Bail reform was implemented not too long ago. So we haven't yet been able to assess from a scientific perspective whether or not crime has, you know, increased or decreased or what the numbers look like. What we do know from other jurisdictions, including New Jersey, which has implemented bail reform, had implemented it several years ago, many jurisdictions, we have not seen any significant decrease or increase in crime from bail reform efforts. So people have gotten released in a in a greater number pre-trial, but we've not seen any sort of corresponding increase in crime. The jury's still out in Houston, but we don't see any reason to believe that the, that there's any difference in terms of crime rates. Alec, do you have anything to add? I'll just note that the great weight of the empirical evidence, and I'm I'm really an evidence person. I, I try to not make my policy decisions based on on anecdotes. And so there's going to be anecdotes of horrible things that happen in every jurisdiction. But the great weight of the empirical evidence on bail reform is that money bail has no connection to making communities safer, has no connection to people coming back to court. And so on every metric that, that's been studied in every jurisdiction, whether it, and whether it's misdemeanor and or felony, is that making these decisions based on access to money is not good public policy. And so I think I have no reason to believe that Houston is going to be the one outlier in that great body of empirical evidence. Art, you mentioned risk assessments, and you noted that Arnold Ventures has invested a great deal of resources and time uh, in developing 
a risk assessment tool, a database-based risk assessment tool. Ours is called the Public Safety Assessment. There are others out there. The principle behind the risk assessment tool is, as you note, to try to create some sort of database evaluation of the likelihood that a specific defendant will either recidivate or, or fail to appear in court. Alec, you are not a fan of risk assessments. Tell us why and tell us what you think a better alternative is. I would say it's more that I think that they've been misunderstood and misapplied. So I think there are several problems with risk assessment tools. I think all of us are familiar with some of the main objections. So, for example, one of the main objections is that the current risk assessment tools, which are just algorithmic assessments based on data, require certain inputs. Inputs like, what is your prior arrest and criminal conviction history? Those are obviously going to be flawed in a system that is plagued by racial and socioeconomic disparities. The inputs that you're putting into the tools algorithm are going to have certain biases. And so there must be some way of understanding that and controlling for it. And most of the criminal system actors who are employing the tools aren't making the necessary corrections for that kind of input error. My main problem, though, is a little bit more significant, and I think that is that the the existing tools are largely misunderstood by the people that are using them. So the tools that have been developed, like we can take the Arnold PSA tool as a perfect example, um, were designed to give more objective information than what judges are using in their own minds, which are often biased as well, right? They were designed to give more objective information about what a person might do in the pretrial period if they weren't given any other assistance, if there were no other conditions applied to them. So the original data sets were all about if we make no interventions in this person's case or their life, they have a certain percentage chance of not coming back to court and a certain percentage chance of committing a new crime. But the the constitutional question for detention is not what would happen if we did nothing. The question is what other kinds of alternatives short of detaining the person can we employ? Things like reminders to come back to court, rides to court, pretrial supervision, in extreme cases, electronic monitoring. Those aren't factored into the into the data sets. And so they should really be, the tool is very helpful in assessing which people are good candidates for different levels of supervision. But there, it's not a good metric for who should be detained. It's not because it doesn't answer the legal question that's relevant for detention. But do you think that assessment of risk at some level has a place in pretrial? I think that assessment of risk is the only relevant question in the pretrial period. The question is, should we rely on the mind of a judge, which may have its own biases, or should we rely on some more objective sort of metric? And and for me, there's such a low likelihood of pretrial crime being committed and an even more minuscule likelihood of people fleeing. So the vast majority of people prosecuted in American courts aren't fleeing to Switzerland or to Panama when they're when they're charged with an offense. They're largely very poor and they're largely people who are who have never left the geographic area in which they're they're charged. And flight is not a meaningful consideration. It's not a meaningful risk. And we have really great ways of preventing it against that in extreme cases. And so the question for me is how are we are, are we assessing risk? What about the risk of offending? Art, what do you think? You know, I mean, when, when you're going to hire somebody, right, the, big, the biggest indicator of future performance is past performance. So you do a background check. You look at their work performance. You look at their work history. Well, if you want to make a decision as to the risk a person face, uh, poses to society, you, you, of course you have to look at their criminal history. You know, with 25% of our murders in Houston alone last year were people on probation or parole, that means that rather than being in custody, they were 
released, and then they murdered somebody. That's 25%. That's, okay, but those are, those are people who were convicted of a crime, right. which is different than somebody pretrial who is innocent until Correct. proven guilty. So right? again, we have to, again, in, in our city, we've got people that are getting out on very low bond. They probably should have never been on bond because they have a history of being engaged in violent crime. They post it because a lot of these very violent criminals that have a history of engaging in this uh, activity, they're part of criminal organizations that actually can raise $5,000 very easily. Then they go out and they, they're, they're, they're on a bond for murder. But with, isn't, that, isn't that the whole point of bail reform, right? That those people who are risky are able to make bail because they're part of organized crime or whatever and else. And that's why right? we need a tool uh, to, to look at not the ability to pay because money for the rich doesn't mean anything. And for some of these folks who are involved that make a, make a living out of preying on people and preying on society, they can get the money. I, 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 kinda, I, I agree with Alec that, that it shouldn't be a money-based decision. But the, the idea that in extreme cases, is what he said several times, in extreme cases, we can put, a, we can put an ankle monitor. Do you know how many crimes are committed with ankle monitors, including sexual assaults, drug trafficking, murder? An ankle monitor uh, means nothing. In this county, it's so silly, our ankle monitors, that we make the defendant pay for it instead of the government. And when they don't make the payment, guess what happens? The, ankle, the, the, the monitoring company turns it off, doesn't even tell anybody. And next thing you know, they're committing offenses. So we need to use a lot of common sense. And the American people, including communities of color and poor color, guess what? They have common sense, and they know common sense when they hear it. And we need to bring everybody in this conversation and be smart on reform. Yeah, just to clarify, I'm I'm not advocating ankle monitoring or electronic monitoring. In fact, there's no single piece of empirical evidence that ankle monitors do any good. I was just noting that in the, the tools that have been created haven't studied that question. And so we've been resorting to pretrial detention as the remedy, but we haven't. And the tools actually don't take into account what might have happened if other alternatives short of detention were employed. There's two more critical points about the tools. One is that they measure the risk of a new offense, but they don't distinguish between a new drug possession offense and a new murder offense. So they spit out some number about how likely you are to commit a crime. But we actually care much more about the types of pretrial crime because someone who's addicted to, to, a, to a drug is probably very likely to commit a new drug offense. And in fact, jailing them is not the solution there. Treatment would be the solution. And so if you give them treatment, they may actually become much less likely to commit a new, a new offense. I and, agree with that. And so I that's the existing, a lot of the existing tools that are being used around the country when they spit out a risk score, it doesn't distinguish between different types of crime. The final thing, and this is really the profound question at the heart of all of this, is that the risk assessment tool algorithms are a tool, like any other tool, like a hammer. They can be used to tear down a house or to build a house. And in the hands of someone who wants to increase incarceration, the tools can be used to increase incarceration by messing with what thresholds you use um, and by what how you what recommendations you make based on various risk scores. And someone like like the chief of police might have a different risk tolerance than I do. I might look at someone and say, there's a 5% chance they commit a new crime while they're on release. That's a very low chance because it's a 95% chance they're not committing a new crime. The chief might look at that and say, wow, 5%, it's too high of a risk. I want to jail that person. And so the tools don't answer the central moral question in our society. Right, but that's the role of the judge, right? I mean, the judge in many jurisdictions, including in Houston, is elected, is an elected official who is tasked with making that determination. And there's no transparency in those courtrooms. We need to bring, we need to put a big light on our criminal justice system. And we need to really make sure that people know what's going on in the courtrooms. Because people who vote for judges don't even know who they're voting for. But I have one question, if I could. Under what circumstances do you think people should be held 
they have committed felonies pending a trial. I think the Constitution is very clear about that. The Constitution says you can only detain... This is the federal Constitution. The yeah. Texas Constitution is even more progressive than the federal Constitution. Um, in Texas, well, thank it you says... for saying that. We, we've been called a lot worse in Texas. <laughs> thank you for calling us progressive. We don't get enough credit in Texas right. for being more progressive. Well, we I mean, Texas was a leader in criminal justice yes, reform. absolutely. There's only a couple of circumstances in which a person may be detained prior to trial under the Texas Constitution. Under the federal Constitution, which is a little bit less protective of individual liberty than the Texas Constitution, a person can only be detained prior to trial... If they're charged with a serious offense, which the Supreme Court has never defined, and there's no condition or combination of alternative conditions that could reasonably mitigate against the danger to the community or risk of flight. And so what that means is that a judge has to, she'll have in front of her a person whose life is is really on the line in this decision. It's an incredibly important decision. And there's going to be arguments about this person's background and history, and the judge has to take it all into consideration. And the judge has to release that person unless she finds on the record after a robust hearing with a lawyer, with an opportunity to put on evidence and to challenge evidence, that there is no other condition short of detaining the person that could reasonably mitigate a particular danger that's on the record. That's a very high standard. And it pains me to see that in hundreds of thousands of cases every single day, in courtrooms around the country, in every courtroom I've ever seen, judges are not engaging in that rigorous intellectual and evidentiary discourse. And would you support, because speedy trials is also part of the constitutional requirements, aren't they? Are we entitled to a speedy trial? That's correct. Would you support and advocate, maybe start suing some of these jurisdictions that do not want to have more courtrooms, do not want to have more prosecutors, do not want to have more defense attorneys, because they want to they want to uh, gum up the system, both for their own reasons. Would you support litigation to start having us invest in people's rights to a speedy trial? I mean, justice delayed is truly denied. And people should not be living under a cloud because they have not had their case heard and adjudicated. Next time I I sue someone, I'll definitely say that the chief of police in Houston asked me to do it. Um, (laughs) I I think that the, I would reframe the question a little bit. I think I think most of the speedy trial problem in this country is caused by an incredibly backlogged bureaucracy. 96% of all police arrests around the country are for what the FBI calls nonviolent. The vast bulk of what the criminal punishment bureaucracy is doing are not these serious cases that that I've seen on your Twitter feed, are not the serious cases that... Are you that, following me on Twitter? I don't follow you, no. Oh, shoot. Uh, but I have seen it. <laughs> Thank um, you. <laughs> uh, they're not the serious cases that make the newspaper ad, you know, in the commercials, the Willie Horton type no. cases. Uh, the vast bulk of what police are doing, the most common arrest in many jurisdictions is driving on a suspended license after someone lost their license because they couldn't pay debt. Another most, one of the most common... Well, I, I support no bail for that. There's more people arrested in this country still today for marijuana possession than all violent crime combined. We don't even arrest you for marijuana here. So the the point is that the system is being clogged with all of these other cases. And so to ask me about speedy trials, it's a talking point um, among many in in this bureaucracy that they need more prosecutors and more judges and more courtrooms and more defense lawyers and more... Every bureaucracy wants to metastasize itself. That's the definition of bureaucracy. People who, who value individual liberty, I think, have to take a step back and say, wait a second. Law enforcement officers are telling us we have the most violent country in the world. We have terrible outcomes. We've let this system spend trillions of dollars for decades. We've jailed hundreds of millions of people. We've separated hundreds of millions of families. We've spent, we've spent all of these resources. We've, we've done all of this. We've surveilled people. We've, we've changed our Fourth Amendment laws. We've staffed up on police and handcuffs and sirens and bulletproof vests and weapons and SWAT teams. What have we got for all that? So what I think is at the core of a lot of the bill reform debate is, you know, on one hand, you have somebody who is detained, accused of a crime, 
but innocent until proven guilty mm-hmm. under our legal system. That person won't be tried for weeks, months, maybe years, yeah. right? So at the same time, we have an interest in public safety. Yeah. Law enforcement has the task of keeping us safe. Judges have the tasks of empowering law enforcement to keep us safe and of, of keeping, and keeping society us, and safe. And keeping us honest as well. And keeping you honest, keeping us all honest. So help me understand how you both grapple with those two issues, the issue of civil liberties of the defendant on one hand and public safety on the other. I think that the, it's not so much of a dichotomy as it's often perceived. I, I believe that the evidence shows very clearly that incarceration doesn't make us safer. In fact, some of the research that Arnold Ventures has done, for example, has shown that detaining people even for a few days destabilizes their life and makes them more likely to commit crime in the future. And that's obvious when you think about it. You know, someone loses their job because they can't skip their shift or they get a a break in the medication they need um, for their mental illness or they lose their housing. It makes sense. And and so jails are are, are horrific places that people should not go thinking that that they're going to come out less likely to commit crime. Right. That's just not what jails do. That's not what their purpose has been. Their purpose has been something much more sinister, in my view. So I think that this common this misconception that the more we jail people, the safer will be is is a real fallacy and, and a cancer at the core, a malignancy at the core of, of a lot of the current policy around 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 reform. Right now, we're seeing vigorous debates on this issue nationwide. New York State uh, just implemented; it just went into effect uh, earlier this year, a comprehensive bail reform package. Now, New York is is unique in that constitutionally, it is prohibited from assessing dangerousness as a pretrial. We've seen in California a huge fight uh, in the context of bail reform because the California law actually did insert at the last minute this concept of dangerousness, allowing judges to evaluate whether or not a specific defendant was dangerous. And if the dangerousness determination was made, the defendant was able to be remanded and incarcerated until, until trial. I know this is an issue where you have very strong views, Alec. I would love to hear both of your views on this issue of whether or not judges should be able to incarcerate someone if they believe the person is dangerous. And before you answer, I'd like to just read you a quick excerpt of a, an op-ed that recently in the New York Times, the NYPD commissioner, Dermot Shea, wrote. And here's what he said. The NYPD believes significant bail reform can be achieved as long as judges are granted the discretion to remand suspects whom they determine to be genuinely dangerous. We can trust New York State's judges to use this discretion wisely and only for individuals who pose a real threat to the public or who continuously flout the justice system. Alec, what are your thoughts? I don't trust judges is my main thought. I have seen no evidence that judges are good at assessing dangerousness, that the concept of dangerousness can be um, in any way meaningfully extracted from this history of of oppression in these neighborhoods, these neighborhoods that is that has made these neighborhoods to the extent they're quote unquote dangerous. I don't really know what that means. To me, it's a much bigger danger in those neighborhoods to have lead poisoning and um, lack of of clean water. And right, but we're talking about the dangerousness of a defendant. Well, right? correct, but I mean, I'm for a court. You're much more likely to be killed in any of these neighborhoods through a car accident or through some kind of other kind of accident through pollution, through there's many other co- lack of adequate health care, lack of, of access to the, the basic necessities of life, like um, nutritious food and and lack of treatment for, for medical issues that children develop that are treated in richer neighborhoods but aren't treated in poor. So I'm just saying that the criminal justice system in this country, such as it is, has 
concocted a narrative of a very particular kind of danger. And that particular kind of danger has been our excuse for punishing these communities rather than investing in them. And right, but we're talking about somebody who is before court, who is accused of a crime, and we're talking about whether or not a judge should have the ability to look at a record, look at a risk assessment, or independently come to the conclusion that this person is too dangerous to release into society, and that person should be incarcerated. All right, what is your... And, and, and we invest in a criminal justice system that if that decision is made, they get a speedy trial. I think that's got to be part of it because I agree with every, you know, what's, what's funny is I agree with a lot of what you're seeing in terms of investment. But we still have to deal with the people that are out killing people raping people, robbing people, beating people. And I'm sorry, but my, my, my views aren't based on a study. My views are based, I go out here in this community all the time. I still work patrol all the time. And what's interesting is some of the people that think that, that are, that are, that are pushing, you know, one of them is the commissioner's court here that you, he lives on sunset in a very nice home. He doesn't have to worry about his kid being shot. But guess what? That's a real reality that communities of color face in this country. And you can call me a racist. You can call me whatever you want. Anybody can call me whatever I want. But I want to stand up for those people. But what evidence do you have that a $930 million budget and years of caging people for those offenses leads to less shootings? You, you, what evidence do you have? You know what? Because when a guy that, uh, that, that sits there and shoots people behind bars, I know one thing. They're not shooting anybody behind bars. And when a guy who we arrest for murder gets out with a $5,000 cash bond, arrested, charged with murder, and within a couple of weeks, a little boy is shot by that same fool. You know what? That child may not be my child, but that child matters to me. Have you asked- and for one person is one too many. And to say that well, that everybody should be out on out on uh, their own recognizance, put a put a uh, an ankle monitor, tell that to the three people that were murdered. And then what you'll always say, oh, that's just an anomaly. We can start giving you a lot of anomalies if we bring transparency to the criminal justice system. Those courts are hiding a lot of the data because they don't want the people to know what's going on. But guess Wait, what? We're going to start doing that. But that guy was out on bail, right? He no, was that, at, he, that he guy had was on an ankle five, monitor. Right, but the other guy was, he had paid the $5,000 oh, $5, bond. bail, he was right. out, yeah. So under a risk so assessment his, uh, tool, uh, right, you know, if a judge were able to determine dangerousness— that a judge conceivably could have said, okay, no, this guy needs to be remanded to jail because he's too dangerous to go in the community. And that's what we need to do. That's a guy, but but in Alex's world, that guy should have been out without any bail. And I agree with that. Alec, do you agree with that? Well, I don't know that particular case. My my broader point is that if you care about these communities, I would ask them, would you rather us spend five hundred and fifty of this of this nine hundred million dollar budget that I have every year investing in my community or an extra police in jails well, and prisons? Go, I, I guarantee you every community I've talked to wants that investment in yeah, themselves. Well, I don't know and I guarantee co- if you spend that money in the community, there's gonna be less shootings. Well, so if me, you care let, about less shootings, you would invest in those me, communities. Let me just say this. I agree that we need to make that investment and if, and if we would start making that investment, it's not either or. Because the problem is to be able to make the, 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 the impacts that we want, we have lost a generation that are just people that are lost. You can't just get rid of the police department, get rid of everything. Because I'm telling you, in this community, you go right now and you go down to the third ward, fifth ward, and you tell them, hey, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna cut half of your police department so we can invest. They don't want either or. They want both. So I promise you, you think you're speaking for the whole community, but you're not. This country can afford to do both. 
Uh, well, this has been a great conversation, yes, and, and clearly you come at it from from different perspectives. I have one last question for each of you. Um, Alec, what would you like to teach law enforcement about pretrial release? I think we've covered some of this. I mean, I think for me, it's about understanding the the great weight of the empirical evidence, and that is that um, the vast, vast, vast majority of people who are charged with crimes can be released quickly and safely into the community, will not be a threat to the public while they're out on pretrial release. And the existing system that has detained so many of them for so many days, weeks, months, and sometimes years is extraordinarily harmful. And so all over the country, we have an emergency in our jails with 400,000 people in there just because they can't pay money bail. And they're there because police officers have arrested them, knowing that we have this kind of bail system. They're there because um, jail guards are keeping them there, knowing that it's not doing any good and it's hurting them and their families and it's separating them from their children. This is an emergency situation. Let me just say this and to you. I would hope that you understand that we support your efforts. We really do. Law enforcement executives and and police chiefs support your efforts. And what worries me is that we go too far on bail reform and we end up having things go sideways. The American people, things that are very achievable that we still haven't done are not going to be achieved. So I hope that we can find some common ground, keep the conversation going. I've heard a lot of good things about you. All well, from all from the left. I haven't heard anything from the right. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to find some of those people, but I, let's keep the conversation going. Yeah, absolutely. Bipartisan conversations uh, is what we're all about. So, well, we look forward to continuing this conversation. This is a long road. We've come a very very long way. Uh, Harris County is in a very different place than it was even two years ago. So I'm grateful to both of you for making this well, a we, better county. And I and I'm gonna tell you, we're very grateful for the work that you and uh, your foundation is doing in this space and another in other areas. So thank you for your commitment to well, society. Well, thank you both for being on Deep Dive. Thank you so Thanks much for so having much. me. You've been listening to Deep Dive with Laura Arnold, produced by the Arnold Ventures Philanthropy. If you'd like to learn more about the organization, visit arnoldventures.org. By maximizing opportunity and minimizing injustice, we make change for the greater good. Again, that website is arnoldventures.org. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll see you again next time on Deep Dive.